Flash back to the year 1880. Okay, Chicago. Remember that? Some people here remember that year. Uh, I said 18, not 19. Um, Chicago's the location. The occasion is the Republican National Convention. You know, we're starting to talk about the conventions coming up in the next year. People are talking about who's going to run. Well, back in 1880, they had a big convention. And at that time, it was quite a race because U.S. Grant, remember him? Some of you, he was a Civil War general, and he'd been the president two terms. Nobody had ever run for a third term, and he was, talking, he was going to run for a third term. And it was very controversial. And he was stoutly opposed by two men you're f- very familiar with, James G. Blaine, and, um, and the other was John Sherman. Probably never heard of these guys. John Sherman was General Sherman's brother, but anyway. Uh, but these guys were running together, and who was going to win? And it was deadlocked, and suddenly they had to have their nomination speeches. So Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York got up to speak. Conkling was a very controversial character. He was the boss of the New York machine. And he was a big guy, and he was just kind of a loudmouth kind of character. And he got up and he gave this very bombastic, rambling uh, um, nomination speech for Grant, and it just rocked the house. And the next guy that came up was James A. Garfield. Garfield was a very powerfully built man himself, and uh, he was a, a former educator, and he was a former lay pastor. He was a godly man, and he had served on Grant's staff and was a distinguished general. But he was good friends with John Sherman, and he got up, and he gave this eloquent response. And just on the spot, he rebutted the things that Conkling had said and then gave this great, all these great reasons why they should vote for Sherman, and people went wild. But they still couldn't decide who to vote for. And then something very unique happened, and this will never happen again. It never happened before, and it will never happen again. This is what happened. Somebody started shouting out, Garfield. And Wisconsin threw 16 votes to him. And on the floor, Congressman Garfield, who had come to nominate his friend, who had never announced that he was running for office, there was this cavalcade. Everybody started voting for him, and he found himself nominated to run for president. What would that be like? I mean, he was just like totally in shock. He, I mean, he, 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 you write a letter to you or call you. You couldn't call his wife, but, you know, guess what, honey? <laughs> you know, we're going to run for president. And so it all just happened like that. You know, in history, in every era, people are vying for power. And often those people that are in power are illegitimate and unqualified leaders. So often, the person who is the most qualified is the person who, especially in this day and age, doesn't have the money to run for office. And in the first century, the most qualified man to be king was Jesus. But at that point, um, a lot of people didn't realize that he was just coming out of no place. And so there was a man that began calling his name and preparing a way for him, and that was John. And as we get into this series today, more and more on salvation is here, we're going to have John introducing Jesus. So Jesus comes as preached by John, and he comes on the national stage. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 3. We're actually going to cover, we're not going to go into detail with the whole chapter. We'll hit highlights in this chapter, but it all links together. And so um, we'll go ahead and take a look at that chapter, but emphasizing John comes as preached by Jesus. We'll look first at the first six verses. John preaches in preparation of the coming of Christ. He's he's preaching in the coming of Christ. So uh, let's see what what is said here in the first six verses. It says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, 
When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene, that's not um, the Abilene in Texas, um, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall be straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Boy, that's exciting stuff, huh? Now, it's interesting that Luke, remember, is a historian. And he gets it right on the dime. In those days, the calendars were not as trustworthy as today. So he knew that if he named a person who was a well-known figure, like an emperor, that they could figure out from that, they could track it down, and they could be pretty precise on when this event would take place. So we know today that Tiberius Caesar ruled. He came in to rule around A.D. 14. So this event would have taken place around A.D. 29. The other thing he does is he introduces him exactly the same way in the Old Testament they would introduce a great Old Testament prophet. A great example of this is Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. You name all the rulers at the time, and then you point out who he is. So he's pointing out this is a great prophet here. But listen to this. These rulers are all illegitimate, and they're all unqualified. Tiberius Caesar was the stepson of Augustus Caesar, and he did not want him to become emperor. But he died, and he was the most capable man. And he was a capable leader in a lot of ways, but his entire service as emperor was marked by a morbid fear that somebody was going to betray him. He put Pontius Pilate in, in power at Judea, and then when he died, Pontius Pilate was not the most sensitive of rulers. Uh, he overstepped his bounds, didn't have Tiberius there to support him. He was out. Now, remember Herod the Great? Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born. He died... And he separated his kingdom into three sons. One of them was so lousy, they threw him out. That was the guy in Judea, and they replaced him with Pontius Pilate. They let the other two guys rule. One of them was Philip, um, actually called Herod Philip. He was out in Trachonitis in Tria. Who knew where that was? He was insignificant. Herod was right in the middle of the action. His name was really Herod Antipas, and we're going to learn more about him. He was a conniving guy, but he was a puppet. He was just a puppet position, and he was just holding on with political you know, efforts. Lysanias was so unknown that some scholars have, have, have questioned his existence until archaeological finds of inscriptions have proved that he existed and proved once again that Luke was the best of historians. He was correct all along. But it's also, what's interesting here, did you notice that he named two people as, um, as priests, as high priests? How could you have two high priests? He named two of them, Annas and Caiaphas. In 66 B.C., Julius Caesar started not only um, determining who the civil officers and rulers were, he began deciding who the priests were. These were illegitimate priests. They did not follow along with the priestly line. They were appointees of the emperor. Annas was very popular. Caiaphas was his son-in-law. Annas was the power behind the throne, and everybody knew it. And even Josephus the scholar points this out that the well-known historian of the Jews knows this. So these guys were all, you know, all going in the wrong direction. They, they weren't qualified for their positions. And furthermore, it goes down and it says that the word of God should have come from who? The high priest. 
But instead, it comes from this guy out in the desert named John. But John is the son of Zechariah who was a priest. And he can trace his heritage, as we learned earlier, through his mother Elizabeth, all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. He was probably the legitimate high priest. He's out in the desert, not really the desert, but the wilderness, an uninhabited area. He's, uh, he's out there on the Jordan. And the Jordan, if you look at a map, runs right up the gut of what used to be Israel. And in that time, they were calling it Palestine. And so it's a great location because people can get to him. You don't have to travel that far to get to him. He's right in the middle of everything, and yet he's right near the Jordan River. Why? He needs to do some baptizing, and that's why he becomes known as John the Baptist, right? And so John the Baptist, we saw when he was a little boy, we've kind of followed his journey. He's out now in, uh, in this uninhabitable region, so to speak, and he's traveling up and down and he's giving this great message. And the message he's giving is a message of baptism for repentance, for forgiveness of sins. But when you put this all together, he's really saying he's preparing them for the coming of the Messiah. He's preparing for them for the coming of Christ, which means the same thing. He's saying, he is now coming, and you better prepare yourselves. And this is how I want you to prepare yourselves. Um, I want you to prepare through a baptism. Now, baptism's were more common in those days than today. And it was just a washing where you would make a statement that you were changing a position on something, so to speak. That's how it initially started. The baptism they have here is a different baptism than the baptism we have today. The baptism here was a baptism of repentance. In the Hebrew mindset, that meant that one was turning from one position and then turning to another position. The point is, is that you would turn from your sin and turn to God. He is saying, it is time for you to turn to God and get your life right with him. You better be right because Messiah is coming. He is coming soon, and you better be right with him. Now, his baptism does not offer forgiveness. As we'll see later in the passage, forgiveness comes through the Messiah. So it's like he's saying, if you want to experience true forgiveness one day, then you better get your life right now and be prepared. In verse 19... It says that John was giving the good news. You know, good news means gospel. That's Jesus' message. So how could John be giving the good news before Jesus came? Well, if you look at it, he's laying the foundation for it. Remember, we often say that A is, is to admit that you are a sinner. Admit that you can't get to God on your own. That's what he's doing. He's saying, number one, if you want to come to know God, if you want to get ready for Messiah then admit that you're a sinner and get your life right with God. Turn away from yourself and turn to him. That's the starting point. He's coming, and you'll get more when he gets here, but get yourself ready. That's the message. Now, he fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, which is a prophecy that these guys knew, you know, like it was on the back of their hand. They were waiting for a guy to come to say the Messiah is coming. And he comes in and he fulfills that prophecy. What I really like, I like here where it says, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. What they did for kings in those days is when a king went on a journey, he would send soldiers and men ahead of him and they would prepare a highway. They would just build a highway out of nothing so that he would have a way to go on his journey. And that's the picture here. Do we still do that for rulers today? I think we kind of do. One time, years ago, Carrie and I were traveling down Highway 680, heading to San Jose, and as we got near Stanford University, all these cars were in our way. 
It was early in the morning. We, couldn't, we could no longer drive where we were. We had to go in the far lane. There were like five lanes saying we had to go in the far lane because all these cars were there. And as we drove by, we saw that the cars were circling a limousine. And seated in the limousine as it drove off towards Stanford, at, at the Stanford exit, was a lady with white hair. So we read the next day in the newspaper that Barbara Bush, who was at that time the first lady, and her husband the president, visited Stanford. So we went along with their entourage. So we still do that today, don't we? We have these big entourages uh, for people that are in leadership. So that's what he's basically saying. Is he's saying, clear the way. Clear the way. Make way a path for the king. The king is coming. Get a path ready for him. The true king is coming. Let's get a path ready for him. How are you to get it ready for him? He's not talking about physical preparation. He's talking about spiritual preparation. He wants a highway built on our purified hearts. That's what he wanted then. Purify your hearts to prepare yourself for Jesus' coming. And I think in principle, it still relates to us today because Jesus is coming again. So our hearts need to be purified before him. We need to always be turning from what is wrong and turning to him as a regular way of life, don't we? If Jesus was to come for you today, would you be ready? Would you have repented of all the things that you need to repent of? Are you right with him? Good thing for us to ask on a daily basis. Now, he goes on and and John boldly clarifies his message in verses uh, 7 through 20. You know, I didn't turn off my phone. Randy, you didn't see it because he would have called me. Could you turn this off for me? Because I don't want Randy calling me in the middle of my message. Um, Okay, so we move on here. John boldly clarifies his message, verses 7 through 20. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chafe with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John boldly clarifies his message here. He's very bold, but one of the things that we don't see in this passage and is more clear in Mark chapter 3 is he's not talking so much to the regular common people here. 
It appears that the scribes and you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had snuck in, the Jewish religious leaders, and he could tell by their clothing they were there. And they were kind of checking it out. Who is this guy that's getting so much attention? And so he basically turns to them and maybe points to them, and he says, you brood of vipers. He says, you poisonous snakes. You know what happens when there's a fire in the desert? When the bushes burn, the snakes come out. When judgment comes, the snakes come out. Are you afraid judgment is here? I think you are, but you don't even know what my message is about. This is what my message is about. My message is you need to get your life right with God. You need to get your life right with God too. Everybody does. Just like a tree, and Jesus will give this illustration later. If a tree's healthy, it bears good fruit. If it's not healthy, and we have a number of people that can testify to this in our room that work in agriculture, what do you do with the tree? You cut it down, and you throw it out. And he says, if you're phony, when Messiah comes, and your heart isn't right, and you're not ready to turn to him, you're, you're going to be thrown out to hell. That's what he's saying to these guys, making them a little uncomfortable. And so they said, what should we do then? And what he says is sort of surprising. He, he doesn't give this radical revolutionary address. He just says, treat people well. If somebody doesn't have a tunic or an extra undergarment, in other words, somebody needs clothing, and you have it, give it to them. Somebody needs food, and you have it, give it to them. Tax collectors were the most hated of all because they would extort money from their own people to give it to the Romans. And they called him teacher, which is very respectful, so they're probably feeling a little nervous here. And he says, don't stop collecting taxes, just don't collect more than you should. And the soldiers who were probably protecting the tax collectors, don't stop being, you know, doing what you do, just be a good cop, don't be a bad cop. <laughs> do the right thing. Listen to what he says. It's the same thing that we say in our mission statement. Coming from Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, it's the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. Love God. That's what he says first. And then he says, love your neighbor. Give evidence that you truly have turned to God by how you love others. If it's sincere, and Jesus will say the same, when you become a believer, after Jesus has come, when you become a believer, give evidence by how you live your life. If it's sincere, then you should keep turning back to him and, and, and be kind to him. So really some, some interesting stuff he says here, and it gets their attention, and they say, could you be the Christ? And he says, no. They're surprised because, I mean, can you imagine? He's this incredible orator. Nobody's ever heard anything but he like him. And all these people, thousands, are coming out to see him. And, and he, says, he says, no. He says, I am not. He's so powerful, I'm not fit to untie his, the thong of his sandal, which is what the slave did for his master. I am lower than a slave next to him. He will baptize you, now get this, with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And with, in the Greek language, connects those two. It's not two separate baptisms, but one. What he's describing is a spiritual baptism. He's speaking in spiritual language here, not in a physical baptism. He's going to give you a spiritual baptism. He's going to cover you over in a spiritual way. He's going to do it through the Holy Spirit. Jesus will talk about this in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 that the Holy Spirit gives us a new birth. And the idea of fire is the idea of this cleansing, refining, 
you know, thing that, that comes into a person's life. So what he's essentially saying here is that, that God will come upon a person if a person realizes this. Now, let's back up here. We said A, remember, we said A is you admit that you're a sinner, that you can't get to heaven on your own. If you believe when Jesus comes that he really is God, and that's what he's telling these guys, and you see you choose to follow him, and you truly, sincerely follow him, then he will supernaturally baptize you. And he'll cleanse you up, and he'll make you good for service. And now you know that you've come into a personal relationship with the living God. And that's where forgiveness comes from. True forgiveness comes when you come into that relationship. So that's what he's describing here in a spiritual sense. Now, after he says that, um, he talks about, again, if you're not, that you're, you know, Jesus is going to throw you out. Um, if you're bad wheat, if you're chafe, he'll throw you out. But if you've really sincerely given your heart to him, then you're in forever. And so those are the analogies he's using. Now, he talks to a lot of different people, but he gets in trouble with. And he jumps, Jesus, um, Luke jumps ahead, and he tells what happens later in John's life because the focus is shortly going to be on Jesus here. But he gets in trouble with Herod. See, Herod Antipas had another brother named Philip. Would you ever name both your kids the same name? Anyway, Philip did, whether he, you know, forgot about the other one or what, I don't know. So he has two Philips. One of the Philips lives in Rome, and he doesn't do anything but just kind of lives luxuriously. And so he gets another brother's daughter, his niece, and he marries her, an incestuous marriage. And she is named Herodias, and she is described by historians as being an evil genius. She was a bad lady. And he was a bad man. And Antipas was a bad man. And he came to visit them and decided he liked her. And he um, took her with him to be his new wife. Um, Everybody saw this as, one, adultery, and two, incest. And it was a wrong marriage. But it also caused him problems because guess what happened? His his ex-wife got upset and ran to daddy. And daddy was a king named Aretas of, of the Arabia, and he decided to go to war against Antipas. So Josephus, who was a scholar that lived during this time, he writes in his account, uh, he says, you should have seen what happened, basically. He said, John the Baptist was so popular, and Antipas knew that this was going to destroy his credibility, so you know what he did? He locked him up and put him in prison. And the way it's written here is John indicates that the worst thing he ever did was put John in prison up to this point. So John goes in prison for this. There's a couple things that I want to look at here, and it all kind of boils down to this word boldness. Do you see that? I mean, was John bold or what? It's kind of frightening. I mean, it's almost like in-your-face bold at times. One thing I want to note, however, is he wasn't always bold, and Jesus was also very bold, but he's bold primarily in this sense with the people who are the religious leaders, and the people who are the civic leaders. He's really bold with them. And I I think that's one of the things we say in our church, that we want you to hold us accountable. Uh, We need to do that on a regular basis. If you ever have any concerns, come and talk to us. Don't go talk to everybody else, but come and talk to us, because we want to make sure that we're held accountable. And we also uh, need to hold our leaders accountable. That's easier said than done. Um, But probably, at the very least, um, we need to... You know, at the very least, we need to vote against people who are going into power that are doing things that are clearly wrong. I'm not talking about judgments. There's so many things we can argue about right and left and go on forever and ever. But I'm talking about things that are going to be more clear. Let me, 
let me give you an example I hope that may help in, in our day. Um, I rejoiced when Barbara Boxer stepped down from being um, in the U.S. Senate this week, okay? And maybe, maybe not everybody did, but, but I'll tell you why, and I, I think there's a biblical reason for this. And, and I, I know I'm treading on, on, um, on sensitive territory here, so I want to be careful in how I say this. I believe that abortion is wrong, okay? I have known people who have gone through abortions, some of you even in this room perhaps, that I've talked with and uh, have wept with, so to speak, have cried with, you know, before me and told me the pain that that's been for them, men as well as women. I've seen men suffer because of it. And um, I, I want to say, first of all, that God forgives you. There's nothing you can do that is beyond the bounds of his forgiveness. He's washed you clean. You're okay, and you can move on. But I do want to address this from the standpoint that others not be deceived into thinking that abortion is a good thing. Abortion is not. The Bible says that, you know, especially clear in Psalm 139, that at conception, a baby becomes a baby. And today we're able to prove that with ultrasound. Okay? So it's scientifically proven as well. Barbara Boxer probably did more in support of killing babies than anybody in the history of the Senate. And that's one of the things that she pointed out that she was most proud of. And she'll give an account for that one day. Okay? I need not vote for that. Does that make sense? Problem is, the next person who runs will probably have the same position, you know? And so it gets very difficult, but still, we need to be accountable for that. And, and I think it, when we can have discussions with people in a civil manner, we, we need to about those kinds of things um, without picking every little issue apart because a lot of things we can't. But that thing is more of a clear issue. And I think John and Jesus would have been very clear on that, you know, if, were they speaking here. They would be speaking about those kinds of things. So that's the boldness in a public sense. How about in our relationships and our boldness in our relationships with each other? Being bold enough to have relationships with people. For example, as we've talked about, there are 8 to 15 people in your life that are unchurched, who maybe don't know Jesus, and we need to love them. And what he says to do with them is not to boldly blast them, but to love them and to be an example for them. To be the best worker you can be. To be honest in your job. To have integrity to do what's right, and um, to be a person who gives to people that don't have things, to find neighbors and friends that you care for. I heard a great story that sort of illustrates this. Um, actually, I read a great story. It's in a book um, by Ken Follett called um, The Fall of the Giants, and it's a, a, a novel, a historical novel, so it's, the story is fictionalized but based on a lot of fact. Um, it goes back to Wales in 1911, and there's this boy who's 13 years of age. His name is Billy Williams, and he is going to go into the mines underground for the first time, his first day of work. They gave everybody nicknames, and Billy Williams' real name was William Williams, so they called him Billy Twice. And Billy Twice, they took him down in this elevator, and they sent him into this room, and then they turned the lights off on him to leave him in for one hour in the dark. They would always do that to break them in, almost kind of like a prank, kind of hazing them. But in this case, his supervisor didn't like Billy's family, so he left them in there in the dark all day. 13-year-old Billy began to cry, and then he realized that's not what he should do, and he remembered what his mother said. His mother said, son, remember, Jesus is with you. And so he, he pictured Jesus there with him. He began to realize Jesus was right there, and he began singing him after him after him, and they came to get him, and he was strong, and they couldn't believe it. And they began to take him up on the elevator, and one of the men said, how was it today? How was your hour in the dark? 
He said, if it was just an hour, it wouldn't have been so bad. And then they realized what happened, and they were upset with the supervisor, and they said, how did you manage it all day? Were you afraid? And he said, I was scared, but he said, I wasn't alone. And they said, who was with you? And he said, Jesus. And one man started laughing at him, and the other man said, be quiet. And they gave him a new nickname. They called him Billy with Jesus. This is a secular book, um, but it's very interesting. I, I kind of doubt that the writer even knows the Lord, but what a fascinating thought. Billy with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to be known as that? I would like it, my neighbors to call me Ron with Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. He wants you to behave in such a way that people say your name and then say with Jesus. By the way you work with your customers, by the way you work with your coworkers, by the way you deal with your, your teammates and your classmates, that you're known in that kind of person. Now, there's one more thing, though, that is touchy here as we talk about this whole idea of uh, boldness, and that's prison. Will you ever have to worry about going to prison? No, we don't, we don't worry about that because we're in America. But, you know, things are changing, and they can change anytime anyway. But I'll tell you, I went to this conference a couple years ago, and I, I got this book. I haven't read it yet, but I heard everything the guy had to say. Um, it's called The Great Evangelical Recession. And John Dickerson is was a well-known um, journalist who became a pastor. And he began doing research on the church. He came to this conclusion that churches like ours are in decline. And he gave all sorts of fascinating reasons. He had six main reasons. Um, but in the process, one of the things that he pointed out is he just gave some examples of things that are happening. For example, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you know about this, there was an assault on um, uh, the, past the pastor's housing allowance. If they take away the housing allowance of pastors, um, it's been calculated most pastors will lose their jobs probably in our country. And there was a real assault and a real effort to do that. It got pretty far. It passed several um, circuits, you know, law, you know, judicial circuits, and then they, they were able to stop it. But he says it's just a matter of time before they're able to do that. Well, you think about that. That's, that's interesting in itself. Then what he did is he, ran off, he read off some um, headlines. He goes, here's some headlines you, know, you don't really think about, when you, but when you put them all together, listen to some of these headlines. These are recent headlines, um, you know, from starting from 2011 as far back as 2007, but most of them very recent. California pastor arrested for reading Bible in public. Christian ministers arrested for praying near gay festival. Christians arrested for proselytizing near Muslim gathering in Dearborn, Michigan. Pastors shot and killed at Illinois Church. Shooting at the Family Research Council, hate from the left. Gay fascists storm church attack members. California University Policy Handbook defines Christians as oppressors. Burritos okay, Bible not in Oklahoma School District. These are recent things. I remember last year, remember when um, Brendan Eich was the new CEO of... Um, of Firefox, and they found out that privately he'd made a donation to um, Proposition um, 8. He lost his job. No questions asked. And a lot of people don't even know about that. Uh, the world is changing, and prison may be around the corner for some of us. So here's the question. Even if it doesn't happen, it's kind of like the one, are you ready for Jesus if he comes? Are you ready for prison if it comes? Are you bold enough to take that stand for Jesus? John was, and he's an example for us today of a very bold man. Um, now let's wrap it up. Jesus' baptism identifies him as the Christ. The king is now going to come, and John will exit the scene, and the focus will be on Jesus. Uh, let's just look at verses 21 through 23. 
or actually 21 through 22. Uh, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, first of all, a couple things here. People say, didn't John know that this was Jesus? Did he know what was going on here? And I think he did. It was his cousin, as we've learned earlier, and I do believe he recognized him. Why? Because in Matthew 3, John says to him, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. But also, John confides to others in John chapter 1, verse 31, that he had been told to look for a sign, and the sign was a dove was supposed to come onto the person, and that's how he would know that he for sure was the Messiah. So he may have said, about 99.9 sure that you're the guy, but haven't seen a dove yet. So I've got to go through and see if this is right. Now, the other question that comes into the picture is, why? Baptize Jesus. What did Jesus have to repent of? As we looked at last week, he was God. He, he was sinless, so he had nothing to repent of. And why be baptized in preparation for who? Himself? I think I'll be baptized to prepare for myself. Oh, he, oh here I am. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. So what, what's going on here? Well, what happens is when you, when you look at this is there's a couple things. Jesus tells John that he's doing this for the sake of righteousness. And what he's basically doing is he's giving an example of the perfect man and how the perfect man should respond in this situation and give respect to what's being asked for him to do. So he does it out of obedience to him. That's number one. The second thing, though, is it, it endorses John's ministry, right? Which is a good thing. The third thing it does is it not only endorses John's ministry, but it gives an opportunity to identify him as Christ. And then it also is an example for us. You see, baptism for us is different but what we understand is that if we experience a baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire, we spiritually come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. No one can see that. And so John has asked us to be baptized. Okay, so John has said, I want you then to be baptized. Um, and so, uh, or not John, Jesus has said, I want you to be baptized. So Jesus commands us to be baptized to be able to think what's going, you know, to show people what has happened. So we're now saying, we're not preparing. We have given our lives to Christ and we want people to know. Jesus is an example. Out of obedience, he was baptized even though he didn't need to be. So certainly when he asks us to be baptized because we've given our lives to Christ, we should be. Now what happens is cool. Jesus is praying solemnly. The sky is open, at least for him, and he literally sees God and all this coming out of heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and so he's anointed. By the way, you know what Christ and Messiah means? Anointed? At this point, he is anointed by water by the priest, John, and he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and looks like a dove. People probably saw the dove come upon him. We don't know if they heard the voice, but they saw the dove. John saw the dove, and they probably just thought, wow, this is like TV, and didn't make the connection. Okay, but it was the Holy Spirit that came upon him in this very special and meaningful way. And then he hears this voice. And the cool thing about the voice, it ties into prophecies in Isaiah 42.1 and 41.8. But I especially like Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2, verse 7. The language there is that in Psalm 2, it says all these people are trying to be king. And all these people are trying to have power over God. And God scoffs at them. And in the end, the great king will name his subject king. The great king would be the father, the subject king, not necessarily a son, but would refer to him as father and son. 
And this is a picture of God saying, you are the king. You are the one. As one person said, this is a picture of the political convention where the guy makes his nomination speech and everybody goes wild. Jesus before the heavens is being proclaimed the king of the universe, and it's time for the show to begin. Now, it goes on from here, and it mentions that Jesus was uh, 30 when he began ministry. Uh, The significance is the Levitical priest had to be 30. And also, that 30, get this, some of you will find this interesting, was considered the age of adult maturity. So if you're under 30, I mean, I'm not going to say it, all right? But... (laughs) But that was in that day. So those were the reasons why. Then it gives his genealogy. And I just want to say this. I'm not going to read it because I I just butcher all the names and take forever. Um, But what I do want to say is there were two genealogies. And when you look at them, sometimes you'll say, well, they seem different, like they contradict each other. They don't. The first genealogy given in Matthew 1 is about Jesus' royalty. And, And not all those people are a direct descent, but they're just they're showing that he's related to all the royalty and he's therefore the rightful king. The other one, this one gives his direct descent all the way back to Adam. And um, it, wasn't, it wasn't something that there was a controversy on. And I'll tell you why. Luke wrote this after Matthew and he's not trying to contradict Matthew. He knew what Matthew wrote. So he's just supplementing it. And number two is in those days, the temple still existed. So you could go to the temple and you could look up all of this for yourself. And it was right there for you to see. If there was a problem, somebody would have disputed one of these, and no one ever did. The point of it is stated in verse 38, where it says that Jesus is the son of Adam, and he is literally the son of God. Do you believe he's the son of God? If you do, and have, if you've come into a relationship with him, then you need to be baptized. So I want to end by asking the question that they ask. What should we do? What should we do then? Three things. One, be repentant. If there's something wrong that you need to get right with God, get it right with him. Tell somebody else. Have them pray for you and work through whatever problem that you're having. Make sure that you've got your life right with God. Number two, be bold. Be bold in being honest about, you know, people that aren't doing the right thing, confronting people that aren't doing the right thing. Be bold in reaching out and making friendships with those that don't know Christ and inviting them to church. Be bold in identifying yourself with Christ. Um... Be bold enough to go to prison if you have to. And then finally, um, be baptized. I know of at least three people that are told me they're ready to be baptized. And if you're ready to be baptized, come see us, and we're going to have a baptism <coughs> service pretty soon. Now, before we close, I know you're itching to find out what happened to James Garfield. So what happened to James Garfield? They named a cat after him. Um, but, but beyond that is he actually did become president, and some thought he would be one of our greatest presidents. And in a way, he was, but far different than what people imagined. James Garfield was assassinated, but he didn't die right away. And during the months that he lingered, he had an incredible testimony of courage and of his faith that inspired the nation and the world at that time. And it's well recorded and brilliantly recorded by Candace Millard in her book, Destiny of the Republic, if you want to ever read that. But that situation is often true. You know, you get a person that probably should be king and everybody overlooks them. And then when they get into that position, people feel threatened by them and they kill them. That's what happened with Jesus too. He was killed before he even became an earthly king. But he came back to life again to prove that he really was king and that salvation is here.
Join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much that salvation is here. Thank you so much that the King has come and that he's coming again. And help us to rejoice in these facts today and uh, to be emboldened by them as we think about them. Pray these things in your name. Amen.